You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. We're beginning this morning in Australia and the remarkable news that after 18 days missing, a four-year-old girl has been found alive in the west of the country. Cleo Smith had been camping with her family near the town of Carnarvon when she disappeared last month. In the early hours of Wednesday morning local time, the little girl was found inside a locked house in the town. Western Police Deputy Commissioner Col Blanche described what happened. It's my privilege to announce that in the early hours of this morning, the Western Australian Police Force rescued Cleo Smith. Cleo is alive and well. A police team broke their way into a locked house in Carnarvon at about 1am. They found little Cleo in one of those rooms. One of the officers picked her up into his arms and asked her, what's your name? She said, my name is Cleo. Cleo was reunited with her parents a short time later. This is the outcome we all hoped and prayed for. I can confirm that we have a man from Carnarvon in custody who is currently being questioned by detectives. We'll have more to say on the rescue of Cleo as the day unfolds. But for now, welcome home Cleo. Welcome home Cleo indeed. Tears all round at that rescue of little Cleo. That's Col Blanche, Western Australia Police Deputy Commissioner. Andrea Mays is a journalist with ABC in Perth and she joins us now. Andrea, it is a remarkable story. Will you take us back though and describe for us what has been happening over the last 18 days? Because little Cleo went missing I think on her first night on holiday. That's exactly right. Look, as you said, it's a really remarkable story. Um, Cleo and her family were camping at a very remote spot. It's about a thousand kilometres from the nearest capital city and about an hour's drive from where they live, which is a tiny coastal town uh, with about a population of about 5,000 people. Um, She and her family went camping on the night of October 16th um, and they pitched their tent in the dark and went to bed. Uh, When the parents woke the next day, little Cleo was missing from the tent. Uh, The tent had been unzipped to a height that the four-year-old couldn't possibly have reached, Um, but her baby sister was still in her, um, in that part of the tent where Cleo should have been. Um, This sparked, as you can imagine, a massive police search that went on for 18 days. Um, As the days went on, people were beginning to uh, lose hope, I think. Um, It's a pretty remarkable story to find a a four-year-old alive after such a long time and in such rugged and remote country. Um, But this morning, Morning. Very, very early in the morning, we had the amazing news that Cleo had been found alive in a house, um, as you say, in the town of Carnarvon, in a locked house. Um, and a 36-year-old man is in custody, assisting police with their inquiries. Andrea, how did the police know to go to that house? <coughs> Well, look, it's not exactly clear at this stage. Um, They said that it's been a very big investigation. They had thousands of pieces of information to piece together. Um, We're not exactly sure what led them to that house and this particular suspect, um, but they said that they did receive some information late yesterday uh, that sort of shone a new light on investigations and led them to the house. And have they said anything else about how Cleo is or uh, I know that there's video footage just released on social media in the last hour or so and well she, she looks very happy to be reunited with her parents. 
Oh, look, I think there's not been a dry eye in the house when that video footage was released. Just a little earlier than that, they'd released a photo of her in her hospital bed. Um, she was smiling and looking at the camera as she licked an icy pole. Um, and then just now we've just seen the amazing vision of police uh, lifting her, carrying her out of the house and a police officer telling her that she was about to be reunited with her mummy and daddy. And she's the most delightful little girl. She's got a great big smile on her face. Um, she's waving. She's smiling. Um, it's, you know, there, there couldn't be a person who fails to be affected by seeing that vision. Absolutely. No more information is there on this man that the police have arrested? Uh, look, we know that he's in custody. We'd also heard reports that he had been taken from police custody to the local hospital. Um, there was some uh, speculation that he may have injured himself somehow. We're not sure. We're not sure if he's still at the hospital. Uh, we do know that no charges have yet been laid, but, but police have just said that they expect to lay charges. Um, so that's about all the information we have on him at the moment. Okay, well, I mean, never give up hope. Isn't that the, the message from this remarkable story? Andrea, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Andrea May is their journalist with ABC in Perth in Western Australia. Later today, the Taoiseach will set out Ireland's commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions when he addresses the climate summit here. He has said that Ireland will sign an international pledge to cut methane emissions by 30%, but stressed that the figure was a global target, not an Irish one. Most methane comes from agriculture. Now, The latest report from the Environmental Protection Agency showed that Ireland failed to meet its targets on carbon reduction last year. Last week saw the publication of two five-year carbon carbon budgets, which are aimed at reducing emissions by 51% by the year 2030. What we've yet to see is the breakdown of how individual areas and industries will be affected. Michal Martin is at an event this morning, so we spoke to him late yesterday afternoon when the conference centre here was considerably noisier than it is at the moment. I asked him when people could expect to see the specific climate targets. The government uh, will, will, will be publishing um, our climate action plan uh, and within that climate action plan will be very specific details um, sector by sector in terms of the type of measures that will have to be taken over uh, the next decade. Uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 51% by 2030 um, and then beyond that obviously to go climate neutral by, by 2050 um, and it will be sector by sector, no sector will escape um, and they it will be very very challenging but what is clear to us also is if we don't do anything the impact of climate change will I think undermine our economic sustainability given the impact that storms and very severe weather events have on economic life. Now it had originally been reported I think that those plans would be published this week I think Wednesday was stated so the fact that that doesn't seem to be happening does that suggest that there's disagreement at the moment? The cabinet subcommittee meeting is on Wednesday um, so that should clear the the, the issues and, and, and there's not too many issues left uh, between different departments and just fine-tuning the, the numbers and so forth. So I expect that Wednesday's uh, Cabinet subcommittee uh, will, 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 get, will give it a, um, a, a clear light. Yeah, you say here, you have been saying here that Ireland is in a strong position, that Ireland can be a leader, but why should people believe that when the country has missed so many targets in I, the past? I think that's a fair question and, and it's a fair point. Uh, I think we have missed targets in the past. On this occasion, I think the fact that we have passed a climate law uh, that is comprehensive and that sets uh, legal 
um, um, imperatives on this government and successive governments to achieve that. I think the fact that we have pursued the carbon taxation approach, which is not popular, uh, but which does, under, first of all, disincentivize the use of, of, of fossil fuels, but secondly, gives us funding to enable us to do the things that will help us long term, such as retrofitting of homes, reducing energy, making greater energy efficiency, such as uh, dealing with fuel poverty and targeting resources, and more environmentally friendly farming. And we've taken those steps already, and this budget alone has taken steps in terms of motor taxation, which is all designed uh, towards um, you know, enhancing and transitioning to electric vehicles and so on. This week alone, uh, Minister Eamon Ryan published a rural transport plan, which is very specific in terms of increasing public transport in, in, in the rural parts of our country. And we've much, much more to do in terms of urban public transport. And I'm sure many of those, many of those initiatives will be welcome. But the Business Post reported a couple of weeks ago that Ireland is on track to increase its emissions this year. Is that the case? Could, I mean, we, 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 uh, we, we could be. We've got, we've got to pull that back and we're going to that have to pull back over the next failure, decade. You know? wouldn't it? I mean, in terms of, first of all, I have to go through the, the, the exact figures. We, don't int- we want to reduce it by, by, by 2030. A lot of the measures we take now won't have impact onto the latter part of the decade. But we have been, uh, over the last decade, we have increased. Um, and, and that is problematic. And that is, that is why COP26 is important in terms of creating a momentum and also a sense of buy-in from the general public as to taking the need to take these decisions. And do you think that that buy-in is there at the moment? Because it's clear that while people feel this is a very important issue, that quite a number of people as well, especially the less well-off, are concerned that they're going to lose out because of this. I think we need to do more, uh, and government needs to do more in terms of the communications approach. Um, I think the young people are absolutely committed to this. The young people should be our inspiration, but also I think they're making it very clear it's their future is at stake here. I noticed when I go to schools, green flags, this huge debate within schools and within education about the importance of this. But in different sectors of the economy and decision makers in different sectors of the economy, we have to engage more to bring home to them the reality of this and the need to take this action. Because I I even still get the sense that people will want to pull back or will say, you can't do this, you can't go that far, it's too impactful on us or or on our particular sector. We've got to say, sorry, we've got to move forward. And that will take an educative process and will take working with people to bring people around. And are you talking specifically there about farming? Because Ireland is in an unusual position in the EU in that agriculture accounts for one third of greenhouse gas emissions. So is it possible to tackle that situation without having a negative impact on jobs and on livelihoods? It is, because I think if we don't tackle it, the results will be worse for jobs and livelihoods. Uh, in other words, climate change is going to be very damaging to our economy. So therefore, we've got to take steps to improve upon that. I also believe um, that we, d- we need to switch more towards giving income to farmers to protect our biodiversity through a variety of imaginative schemes um, that will, for example, enable them to grow native tree species uh, and fund that, which will have a, an impact on terms of cleaning our waterways and our rivers, which are in a bad state at the moment. Does that um, mean, though, that they would be paid to produce less? Well, it, it could mean that. It could mean alternative sources of income 
other than what, other than the present day uh, sources of, of, of income. It could mean better uh, and a greater degree of organic farming, for example, which we've made a start in terms of the this uh, announcements by Charlie McCann Logan in the context of the Common Agricultural Policy that there will be far greater resources allocated towards that. It could also mean and will mean investments in new technologies around reducing carbon emissions in terms of food production and in terms of agricultural practices um, as well. And some very progressive farmers are moving on that already. We have to do more in terms of the research. And I would like to see stronger capacity in our research um, bodies, particularly Togusk and others, or universities, uh, to focus in on that issue over the coming years. And yet the main story in the Irish Farmers Journal last week reported that emission cuts of 21%, and that's on the lower end of the scale, as people will know, that cuts at that level could result in the loss of 10,000 jobs. Do you accept that figure? I don't, and I think we need to be very careful of that scaremongering as well. Um, and I think everybody needs to be part... Is it fair to call it scaremongering when it was an independent report? I, I, I believe there have been, been a lot of headlines in the last two to three weeks that, in my view, are creating a sort of impression that this is um, outlandish or it's impossible or it's... Uh, um, off-the-wall type of approach that we're taking or that the world is taking in respect of climate change. What I'm saying to people really um, is we, we have no choice here. Uh, the climate change will catch up with us. It will catch up with our farming. It will catch up with our agriculture if we don't take action. We now have an opportunity working with the sector, working with farmers to make sure we can have a sustainable future in terms of food production. We can have a sustainable future for young farmers. But we have to deal with the realities too in terms of how much the land can take. So you're uh, saying farming will have to change? Yes, farming will have to change. Energy will have to change. Transport will have to change. Transport's going to be enormously challenging uh, in terms of the switch uh, from current day practices to where we want to be. Uh, I'd like to see it faster and accelerated in terms of public transport, for example, in terms of hybrid or electric um, vehicles on our streets. But look, but look at the, the, the payback. I mean, for, I, I hate the belching of fossil fuels out of buses when I walk Patrick Street in Cork or, or Andy Street in Dublin. I just think it's, it's, it's a no-brainer here that the faster we get cleaner buses on our streets, the nicer cities and towns we have. That's the prize as well. And there's jobs in that. If we retrofit our houses, we have you know, better energy efficient and reduced prices. Are there workers there to retrofit yes, the houses? Well, because very, we do have a shortage of building workers. And there's a very strong skills programme now underway in Minister Simon Harris's Department um, of Higher Education and Skills uh, to provide the workers. And we do need more workers. And parallel with increasing the number of people who will be skilled in that area, we'll also have to increase the workforce uh, from Europe and, 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 and across the globe to come to Ireland to, to, to make these changes. One other specific issue and that's data centres which as you know use a hu- huge amount of electricity don't necessarily create a huge amount of jobs. Can all of the proposed centres go ahead? I think there'll have to be modification to the way we've approached data centres and I think the CRU has already undertaken a review with, with the idea uh, that any new data centres would have to be balanced um, by um, carbon reduction um, investment or backup uh, generation that the companies themselves would have to provide. Um, so it's going to be more balanced into the future um, given, give, given the huge demand on the energy sector that they create. Now they are important in terms of the digital world that we now live in and that has transformed itself. I suppose so the question is are we likely to end up with too many of them? Well we have to, we, we cannot end up with too many of them. I think we, we, neither can we have a moratorium on any new 
data centres, but I think we can have a more balanced approach in terms of mitigating the impact on our energy system. At the same time as we're talking about all of this, people will be reading that a number of countries are planning to increase their production of oil, gas and coal. China plans to build more coal-fired power plants. So against that backdrop, people may wonder why small countries should make significant changes. Is it worth it? It is, because the only way this can work is if everybody plays their part, uh, including the bigger countries and the smaller countries. Uh, It's a bit like COVID-19 and the chief medical officer saying, if everybody individually did something extra, we could bring down the levels. Likewise, on climate change, if every single country in the world improved its, 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 you know, how it behaves, how it organizes society, then collectively we will all do better. No one country can opt out of this, uh, and we certainly cannot either. But I think we create a better future for Ireland. We, we create a cleaner future, a healthier future, uh, and a more energy efficient future for this country if we, ch- if we change behaviour and uh, go with the objectives we have set ourselves. Talking of Ireland's future, you're likely to encounter Boris Johnson over the next 24 hours or so, perhaps more than once. Will you be raising the ongoing disagreement over the Northern Ireland Protocol with him? Uh, I will, if I get the opportunity. Obviously, he's extremely busy hosting this COP26, uh, and I will be following up um, after COP26 with uh, the British Prime Minister in relation to the protocol and the Good Friday Agreement. I just had, uh, you know, I had a, a meeting with President Biden uh, after a session uh, that we had uh, in relation to, to, to climate. Um, he called me aside after the meeting to, again, make it very clear to me that the United States takes the Good Friday Agreement very seriously, to use his own words, it matters greatly to me and to the United States. And he said he's made this clear to the UK government. And I do believe that the uh, collective views of all of us is to keep the Good Friday Agreement intact in all its relationships. In my view, the European Commission has come a long, long way in respect of the protocol. And I think have listened to the people of Northern Ireland in terms of the operation of the protocol. Where there's a will, there's a way. And I'll be saying to Boris Johnson that I think uh, the will now needs to happen. We need to get on with it. One final issue. Given the high number of COVID cases at the moment and the growing number of people in hospital, is it still possible to say that restrictions won't be reintroduced? Well, I think it's possible, but obviously there are no guarantees in relation to COVID-19. And the the modelling we received from NEFID was looking at a situation peaking towards the end of November. But it is very concerning, uh, the high rise of, of cases. And I think there's a number of aspects to it. First of all, we have the booster vaccine now that is rolling out to the over 60s. Um, And I um, briefly bumped in yesterday to the Prime Minister of Israel, who indicated to me that the booster campaign has been very, very effective and impactful on their latest wave um, and in, in terms of its impact in, in, on antibodies and so on. And so interesting just to hear that insight from, from, from a society that have used the booster fairly effectively. The use of antigen testing is increasing. Uh, and also, I think collectively, if we continue to work to just be cautious in terms of our individual behaviours, we can uh, resist the need uh, and, uh, and, and uh, avoid, sorry, the need uh, to have any return or negative backward. But it's not something that you can guarantee at the moment. I, I think we know we've learned from COVID-19. Nobody can guarantee anything in respect of it, and we have to take it very seriously. The vaccines work. We are in a different position to the one we were in this time last year. Uh, I mean, when I talk to people around COP26, that Ireland is 92, 93 percent. They just look at me as if I have two heads. They don't believe that, that we could get that high. So that does help us. It doesn't guarantee. Uh, as we know, um, that you won't get infected. 
Uh, we'd appeal to people out there who are not vaccinated to please get vaccinated uh, because the number of unvaccinated in ICUs is high uh, and you risk really severe illness if you don't get vaccinated. So uh, that campaign is still underway uh, and it's encouraging that people who did not get vaccinated until recent times are now coming forward to get vaccinated. And that was Taoiseach Michal Martin speaking to us here at the Climate Conference Centre late yesterday afternoon before that announcement on vaccine boosters for healthcare workers. Now, the long-awaited climate action plan was launched by government yesterday, a plan to have our carbon emissions that contribute to global warming by 2030. And if implemented, it will deliver a sea change in the way we live and work in Ireland, and nowhere more so than in agriculture. There's to be an IFA protest in Dublin Sunday fortnight, but are there opportunities here, as well as painful change for farmers? And are we asking for too little or too much from the sector in this plan? Hannah Quinn Mulligan is a farming journalist who chairs the Women in Agriculture Stakeholders Group. Good morning, Hannah Quinn Mulligan. Good morning. So we're looking at a range of a 22 to 30 percent cut in emissions from agriculture. That would include a 10 percent cut in methane, stabilisation of the national herd, changes in fertiliser use and land management, more organics. Does it all add up to too much or too little from agriculture? Well, I think the first thing to say is that we always knew that this was coming. You know, there are a lot of farmers out there, there's a lot of people listening out there who always knew that these climate measures were coming and yet they feel very sudden and I'm annoyed at that in a way because they feel very sudden because no solutions have been provided really at the same time as saying that we need to cut emissions. And I know that you listed a big long list of things there, but at the same time we don't have exact clarity about what that's going to mean for farmers, you know, actually on the ground in terms of their income. And that's what's frustrating them. And if you take into account the average farmer out there is 57 years old, if you turn around to any 57-year-old and you say, okay, now you have to change completely what you're doing, it's going to scare them. And at the Mm. minute, a lot of farmers out there, they're really scared and really scared for their livelihoods. And it's just unfair. And the way the whole narrative has been kind of told at the minute is unfair because you know I'm a suckler farmer here in Limerick and I'm not going to evaporate overnight but I am willing to change and there are lots of farmers out there who are willing to change so things like fertilizer we've already been cutting down our our fertilizer use and next year I'm hoping to go to zero hopefully on the fertilizer front and organics as well the fivefold increase in organics you know that's really welcome and something that I will seriously look at as a farmer is going into but you also need to take into account there needs to be a market for organics there are only 1500 organic farmers beef farmers in Ireland there are only essentially two processing plants meat processing plants and they're effectively owned by one person and that's ABP so Larry Goodman's ABP again so all of these measures are great on paper, but farmers need to see that they're going to add up for them as well. Because we are doing things already and we're keen to do more. But the way the narrative is currently framed, it's scaring people and that's unfair. Um, there's also, is there a lack of leadership? Um, you know, headlines about, you know, millions of a hit on rural Ireland and tens of thousands of jobs on on the line, Uh, you know, protests and people saying it's the death of rural Ireland. Is that an overreaction? I I think that there's perhaps been a huge reaction on both sides and that's 
not really surprising because there is a huge task ahead of us, not just farmers, but a society as a whole in terms of facing up to climate change. But in rural Ireland, in the rural village that I'm from, the only thing that's keeping lights on and that's paying bills in a lot of houses is actually farming. So people are obviously going to be protective of that until that there's another kind of economic impetus. But what I would say as well is that, you know, we all have a duty towards this. And something I was really disappointed in seeing is that, say, when shops reopened and there were massive queues outside all of these shops, it was treated as a celebration. No one pointed a finger and talked about the damage that fast fashion does on a global scale in terms of polluting waterways or anything like that. And yet almost every headline that you see about farming is negative. And that that's not fair because if we're going to solve this collectively as a society we all need to put our shoulder to the wheel yeah. and farmers know that as well but it's, blaming farmers for it isn't going to help we need to start thinking of them as a key part of the solution because that's what we can be and in fairness i mean you know a lot of farmers particularly those involved in dairy expansion they were following government policy throughout the past decade you know farming was getting a pat on the back because exports were sustaining the economy in the dark years of the banking crash yeah that's definitely an element of it and a lot of farmers feel hard done by because they feel that there's a handbrake turn now and all they were doing was following policy but at the same time I sometimes feel that we vilify farmers without thinking of the practicalities of what they're doing Mm -hmm. on the ground. You know, my farm here, we've planted over a thousand oak trees and I will happily plant more um, if if that's what the scheme or the policy is going to tell me. And there's another dairy farmer down the road from me and people would say he did the typical thing of going to 60 to 200 cows. But he has 30% of his land in white clover, which means that he's significantly slashed all of his nitrogen usage. And the clover as well on top of that provides a haven then for biodiversity when it flowers. So there's an awful lot that farmers are doing. And like I said, they will do more. But the whole narrative and the way it's framed at the minute is just going to divide far- farmers from the wider society. And that's not going to help anyone because climate change is a question that's being asked of everyone. We'll be talking to the Thonishda in the second hour. Given what you've been saying about the way farmers feel, about the willingness to change, but equally you're not going to evaporate, uh, what would you want to ask him? I think I'd want to ask him for a detailed analysis and a detailed plan, but I'm not sure that um, I'm go- that, we're, that we're going to get that at, at the current stage. And I think what farmers want as well is just a little dose of realism as well. That's what they'd that's what they'd really like. And I know I'm being um, a, a little bit cheeky here, but in terms of the work that we're doing with women in ag, I mean, there's an example where every single farm organisation got on board and put forward a representative to actually work together in terms of tackling something like gender equality. And we only had a couple of months to do it. And yet Minister McConnell Oak, fair play to him and the Department of Agriculture, you know, they've put measures in place now, hard copper fastened measures with money at the bottom of them to make sure that women will be represented and recognised because there's 70,000 women out there working in farms who are unrecognised at the minute. So that's the sort of kind of drive and leadership that we do need to see on this. You know, farmers will change, but they have to know that there's going to be a safety net there in terms of uh, in terms of protecting their income as well. And like I said, they can be a key part of the solution and we need to start thinking of them as that. Thanks a million for your time this morning. That's Hannah Quinn Mulligan there, a farming journalist who chairs the Women in Agriculture Stakeholders Group. 
now, the European Court of Justice has recently ordered Poland to pay €1 million a day for not suspending a controversial disciplinary chamber, which is central to a row between Warsaw and Brussels. The Polish Prime Minister, Mateusz Morawiecki, has yet to deliver on a promise to close down the body, which is seen by critics as a way of keeping judges in line with government policy. But this is not a one-off row, as recent difficulties between Poland and the rest of the European Union have emerged over other issues, including judicial independence, the primacy of EU law in the country and concerns over the treatment of minority groups, including people who are LGBTQ1+. The Polish ambassador to Ireland is Anna Sohanska, and earlier I asked her if Poland will comply and pay the EU fine and dismantle the chamber. You know, I I, I can tell you that uh, at the moment we haven't received uh, officially this uh, decision. The government will analyze it very, uh, I mean, in detail. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, I, I cannot, I cannot tell you what will be the development. But you are aware, and your government is aware of the consequences of not paying. And not paying means that the country may not get its hands on the recovery money, thirty-six billion, due to Poland. And you've heard the Irish Taoiseach say that what is happening in Poland. He says uh, you've gone too far, and he talked about. Uh, you know, states, reluctant states have come on board with this big fund, this recovery fund. And what you're doing is a slap in the face to those uh, states. At the moment, uh, in Poland, you have a very uh, serious debate, not about Poland leaving the EU because it's uh, just a political slogan and it's a fake news. What we are talking about, and uh, this was also the the clue of the uh, Prime, Prime Minister uh, Morawiecki's speech uh, in the European Parliament, we are talking about the uh, the, the kind of um, union we want to be in. This is the discussion uh, now uh, that everybody in, in all the member states uh, are thinking about uh, the future mm-hmm. of Europe. Uh, uh, from but, but, other but, perspective, but, but, yeah. uh, Ambassador, mm-hmm. apologies for interrupting mm-hmm. you, but do you accept the European Union? Do you accept the primacy of European law that you signed up to when you signed the treaties of to join course, the European Mary, Union? Of course. What happened in Poland with the uh, Constitutional Tribunal ruling of October... This was your Supreme Court. Uh, sorry, uh, our Supreme Court. Uh, uh, it was about, uh, about the primacy of the EU law... Uh, and about uh, on, only in the in those fields where we transferred competences on the EU level, what we say, and I hope this voice is heard in the European Union and in other countries, that uh, the European Union is based on the principle on, of conferral. It means that there are competences that were conferred on the EU level and there are some competences that are in the member states' hands. But did your judges, which you know many critics would now say uh, that this is a court loaded with political loyalists, did your judges not say that the EU law clashes with the Polish constitution and when that happens the Polish constitution is supreme. Only in some fields this is what I I try to say Uh, um, it was, uh, I mean the the judgment was about uh, the clash uh, in in the situation when some interpretation of provision suggests 
in the, only in some fields but suggest that there is a pri- primacy of international law over the Polish constitution do, only do, in some do, parts. Do, do the, do, does the Polish government accept, does the Polish Supreme Court accept the, the values of the European Union, you know, the values of uh, respect for human dignity, freedom, democracy, equality, the separation of powers? Absolutely, absolutely. I have no doubts whatsoever about it. So we come back to the one the one million euro yeah. fine mm-hmm. and we come back to the large pot of money that is available to mm-hmm. Poland, which you're currently cut off from. And how are we going to resolve this? I think uh, the Prime Minister, Minister was very clear when he had the speech in the European Parliament. He was very firm about, uh, you know, uh, national states' competences. But he was open, also very open uh, in terms of uh, dialogue with the European Commission. What he proposed was the creation of a special uh, body that would be composed of the representatives of uh, um, uh, constitutional tribunals uh, from the member states to resolve such problems because Mary I I don't know if you recall in at least uh, seven member states there were rulings that refer to the primacy of the constitution over the European law in some I underline in some areas such as uh, uh, you know we are talking about uh, uh, judicial reform this is the area which is in national state competence. But but didn't the Prime Minister give an undertaking that he was going to suspend the controversial disciplinary chamber? Yes. And that hasn't happened. Uh, Yes, uh, and uh, uh, in our uh, explanation sent to the uh, European Tribunal before the judge uh, imposed that fine, there was an information that we will continue uh, the judicial reform, including the liquidation of this chamber, because the chamber was not effective. When will it happen, Ambassador? I hope it will happen soon. How soon? I, I hope it will happen, you know, it's very difficult for me to say because it's a very complicated uh, legal process. But uh, as far as I know, uh, uh, the, the, the legislation uh, uh, work is going on and it will happen soon. Uh, I'd like to ask you as well about, you know, the, uh, another of the values mm-hmm. of the European Union, the respect for minorities. And yeah. uh, it is said that uh, Poland is not expe- uh, respecting minorities and you are not respecting the rights of LGBT people. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, uh, especially uh, in the situation when, you know, uh, LGBT uh, people have all possible rights in Poland. And uh, there was uh, uh, such a um, a damaging uh, campaign of one of the um, activists uh, who uh, used to travel all over Poland and taking pictures in front of the cities that adopted uh, uh, declarations. these, these LGBTQ plus ideology free zones? There are no free zones, no LGBTI free zones in Poland, and I would like to underline it very, very, you know. Uh, so, what are they? Yeah, these are declarations of local councillors that aimed at uh, expressing their support for the traditional model of the family. They, some of them used LGBTI uh, kind of wording. Uh, some of those uh, um, declarations uh, were considered by um, some of the courts as invalid. Do you condemn them? Uh, the declarations? Yes. I mean, 
it, it it depends how you ask this question because it's uh, some of the declaration they simply uh, are expression of local councillors of the uh, private opinion on the traditional model uh, of the family but meaning councillors and would you would you accept that this could have a chilling effect uh, on 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 young people and all people in Poland all minorities uh, you know um I'm referring here uh, to the fact that uh, in the Polish constitution, the family is defined as the union of the man and the woman. And this is this yes, is what this I isn't understand. about the family. This is about uh, this is minorities. about the family. Yes. This is about so minorities. That, that's why I say that some of the courts uh, rejected those declarations, saying that they are discriminatory towards uh, LGBTI. Uh, and people. do you condemn what these councils were doing? You are talking about my private opinion. Well, you uh, are the ambassador. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I can tell you that, uh, uh, first of all, if you ask me as a representative of the government, the government has nothing to do with the uh, local uh, council. They are independent. In in Poland, this is the this is a completely independent so, level so you, of... You, so you, you, you don't express a, an opinion on behalf of your government? You know, I I can I can tell you that some parts, uh, some uh, some members of the coalition are against. Uh, uh, you Do you know, have a personal view? Of course, I have. But you know, I, I'm not here to express my personal view. And that was the Polish ambassador to Ireland, Anna Sohanska. She was speaking to me a little earlier. One of the busiest Coast Guard stations in the country has been stood down by the Coast Guard. The decision to stand down Doolan Coast Guard Station in County Clare from operations comes after six of the 18 volunteers announced their resignations from the unit at the weekend. Well, the closure is worrying locals. Here's Ben Bennett of Ben's Surf Clinic in nearby La Hinch. It's quite disappointing, obviously, with this time of year as well, coming into kind of a winter season where waves in the sea get, get a bit more erratic. There are kind of local lifeguards that run a voluntary group and so on, but the support from the, the Coast Guard, we would work with them on many occasions, um, both along the sea, um, rescues, and also um, around the cliffs of Moor, and even because I'm involved with climbing as well, I have a number of issues over the years, um, both on the rivers and on the cliffs around the, uh, the coast of Clare. So not to have them on board is, is definitely uh, a worrying and uh, very negative for the area, I guess. That's Ben Bennett there. Well, the Coast Guard has said that the Initiator Unit, which falls under the direct management of the Doolin Unit, will remain fully operational. We can talk now to international maritime lawyer Michael Kingston now. And Michael, you spoke at the uh, launch of the Irish Coast Guard Volunteers Representative Association. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But in their statement, the, the Irish Coast Guard, the, the, the overall state agency, said in a statement that it acknowledges the divisions that have unfortunately existed within the Doolin unit for a number of years and recognises the strenuous efforts and leadership displayed by many members of the units, its management team and other stakeholders to address these difficulties. Why has this happened? What has gone wrong? Uh, good morning, um, Audrey. I do not know um, precisely... Um, the problem in Doolin at this stage, and, and I'm, not, I'm not quite sure why um, the unit has actually been stood down when there are still 12 um, 
um, well-capable volunteers, um, but it, this is symptomatic of of an overall problem. And as you say, I attended the launch of the Irish Coast Guard Volunteers Representative Association, and it's quite clear um, that this is the latest in a litany of failures, um, and that there is a fundamental problem. Um, not just within the Irish Coast Guard um, management in relation to the priority of the well-being and safety of volunteers, but the overall um, maritime safety um, division of the Department of Transport. It seems that um, there have been so many issues now at this stage, very serious issues, that um, that they're out of their depth and it needs a, um, a root and branch review um, urgently. So Doolan would not be an outlier then in your mind? Um, no, it's quite clear um, from um, what I've heard in relation to um, issues within the Irish Coast Guard. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are some um, very well-meaning um, individuals working in Irish Coast Guard management. There are some units around Ireland um, that, that work very well, but there is, on a, on a, a cross-country basis, very serious issues um, within uh, Coast Guard units. Um, many stories um, I've heard about um, harassment and bullying, even to the extent of, of um, some unit members having suicidal tendencies. And when you hear this sort of um, um, these sort of allegations, um, it's it's extremely serious um, and and um, and needs to be addressed urgently. And that's the very purpose why um, volunteers from around Ireland have seen the need to establish an independent um, Irish Coast Guard Volunteers Representative Association um, to highlight their issues. There have been. Um, very um, um, serious problems in relation to the um, worry of, of volunteers raising issues of safety with fear of retribution being put through um, disciplinary procedures. Um, volunteers in the Irish Coast Guard do not, uh, it seems, or are not afforded the same rights of ordinary employees in Ireland in relation to disciplinary uh, procedures, which is a breach of their fundamental right and um, it's a very serious situation. Well, it does sound very serious from what you're saying. The Coast Guard in that statement also said that they were open to, to further talks, to mediation. They want to return the Doolan unit to operational readiness as quickly as is practical. Um, is that is that feasible? Is that achievable? Well, I mean, I don't know the precise issues in Doolan, but it sounds like an unholy mess. Um, to me and I'm sure to um, to listeners, um, we don't want a situation where we have our, our Coast Guard units um, in, in facing into me mediation with Coast Guard management. I mean, it, it's just a shambolic situation. The public expect, expect better and deserve better. Um, we should have a Coast Guard um, system that are at the that are at the ready um, to to serve um, the, the public with the brave volunteers around Ireland who give their time and sacrifice um, to those to those units. But this is the latest in relation to a whole um, raft of issues. So 
there's a comptroller, an auditor general's report that has just been published about the uh, manner in which the Coast Guard have uh, procured um, um, vehicles. There was an issue in relation to night vision goggles for Irish Coast Guard helicopters and the manner in which they were uh, they were um, procured. And also there is um, there has been. Um, um, uh, a problem um, in the Maritime Safety Division of the Department of Transport in relation to the manner in which we investigate uh, maritime accidents. The Kilkey incident in which Katrina Lucas sadly lost her life is, uh, um, is the leading example. We've got a European judgment against our nation of the 9th of July 2020 for our failure to investigate maritime tragedies um, correctly. And if we don't do that, um, we had a conflict with um, two civil servants who should not have been on the Marine Casualty Investigation Board. If we don't investigate casualties, which is the very purpose under international law and European law um, for the um, investigation of casualties to learn lessons and save life going forward, um, then we can't root these problems out. This should have been identified by the Marine Casualty Investigation Board following the Doolin tragedy, uh, sorry, the uh, Kilkey tragedy, and that, that, did not, that did not happen. It was a failed in investigation as confirmed by Marine Hazard's report of the 4th of January 2021. And there were so many errors um, it, it defies belief, and if it had been investigated properly, then these problems would have been identified and, and would not be happening. So um, this needs and requires immediate attention by the Minister for Transport. The um, officials in the department are out of their depth, and they need to be brought to account. And, and um, this maritime safety is a matter of life and, and death. Quite literally, um, absolutely. Michael, we will leave it there for now. Um, Hopefully at some point, either during the programme or later today, we will hear more from the Coast Guard or indeed the department on this. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Michael Kingston there, International Maritime Lawyer. We need to revisit our industrial energy and transport systems, our whole way of life. That's the view of the head of the UN's weather agency as he warned that greenhouse gas concentrations hit a new record last year. Now, one of those changes is likely to involve a move to electric cars. However, Morning Ireland has learned that the motor industry thinks if current car sales are anything to go by, then reaching the target of having 900,000 electric cars on Irish roads by 2030 could be difficult. Kian McCormick reports. Would you consider getting an electric car? Absolutely. If it was more affordable, absolutely. They're just very expensive at the moment. If I had the money to change a car, I think down the line I would. Price and expense. Typical reactions to a Vox Pop on electric cars. Economically, I mean, to change a car, I mean, you're not going to get an electric car less than 30 grand. Your payback on cheaper kind of kilometres is fine, but I think the amount of mileage I do, the payback... I don't think it would pay. Not at the moment. These conversations are random, but what emerges from this non-scientific straw poll is a clear recognition that these drivers will move to electric cars in future years. When when do you change your car then? Uh, Usually after about six years, so another four years I'll think about it. Would you go electric then? I'd say I will, yeah. And as it happens, Alan Green from Lucan is planning to buy one soon.
that was just in looking at pricing for one yesterday. So yeah, something I'm seriously considering, you know. And what's your motivation? What are you thinking about moving to? car, looking to get something that maybe does its bit for the environment and kind of conscious of diesel prices going up and so on as well, you know. Do you think we'll hit the target of 900,000 to that? No, not a hope. It's too much too soon. There isn't the charging network to allow for that number of cars. And they're too, they are expensive items, so I don't think people will, will take that plunge. However, this is not a uniform view. Dr. Hannah Daly, a lecturer in energy systems at UCC, is more optimistic. I'm, I'm far more optimistic than I used to be than, that we can meet this target. You can see that the sales share of EVs is, is almost doubling every year, which is incredible speed of penetration. If you see a doubling of that continue, uh, you get to 100% of new car sales very, very quickly. And, and, and that's where we need to be getting. For Dr. Daly, the benefits to getting fossil fuel powered cars off roads is the most important element to what's happening. They're a big win-win um, electric cars. So, you know, they, they remove air pollution. You know, they, they can be powered by indigenous uh, kind of Irish produced energy, which is which is wind and solar energy. Ireland imports about five billion euros worth of fossil fuels every year. So if we can you know, reach our climate goals by, by reducing those fossil fuel imports and using indigenous renewable energy instead, it's a big win-win. The Society of the Irish Motor Industry says current car sales suggest it will be difficult to hit the EV targets. Its Director-General, Brian Cook. There's a lot of moving parts. Firstly, the economy needs to be performing well to help create a new car market. The current levels of new car sales uh, would suggest that it would be very difficult to reach that target. So we need the incentives, the support and the infrastructure to be put in place by the government. And we need the industry to supply more and more electric vehicles uh, at more affordable prices. Um, and in the short term, that will only be done with government support. But I think as the decade goes on and towards the end of the decade, we will see price parity. And I think if all those moving parts work well together, we can get close to those targets. But if the economy underperforms, or if the uh, taxation and incentive structures in place aren't there, then it'll be very difficult to get close. Dr John Hayes, a senior lecturer specialising in electric vehicles, is also sounding a note of caution. We will hit a significant number. A significant number will be hundreds of thousands. But I don't see us hitting 900,000 or a million. The supply chain for now is totally kiboshed, for want of a word. They're struggling to get cars out. You can, the normal supply of cars is going to be all log jammed for the foreseeable future. The other item popping up is cost. When we compare cars on a like-for-like basis, I can trade in my existing car but if I'm trading up to an EV on a like-for-like like basis, I could be paying about €10,000 extra. And that is certainly going to be a struggle for those lower down on the economic ladder. With the number of EVs increasing year on year, will the Irish grid be able to keep up with demand? Again, John Hayes. I would say that if done properly, and, and it will with time, the grid will be able to handle it, but we're certainly not there in 2021. But you would expect and hope that we would be there in 2030. And that was Dr. John Hayes of UCC ending that report from Kean McCormick. Tomorrow morning, Kean will be looking at retrofitting homes. 
The UK Brexit Minister David Frost will meet European Commission Vice President Markus Shevkovich in Brussels today amid growing concern in Dublin and Brussels that the British government will shortly invoke Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Shona Murray is the Europe correspondent at Euronews. Frost by name, do you expect this to be a, a frosty encounter today with Mr Shevkovich? Yeah, quite likely. Um, There is a sense of foreboding in Brussels that the UK will trigger Article 16. I spoke to a commission source yesterday close to the negotiations and they said they probably will. So uh, David Foss is arriving in the next 15 minutes here in Brussels and uh, we'll know more obviously at the end of that meeting if any more progress has been made. But the technical talks have been going on for several weeks. And we know, for example, last week the commission sent a missive to all EU capitals saying that the UK keeps asking for the impossible which is of course to remove the ECJ oversight on the Northern Ireland Protocol and so I think that while there are you know there's a recognition from the UK side that the the substantial derogations made to the protocol that were practical this is very much from an EU's perspective they believe an ideological one. And Micheál Martin has talked of far-reaching implications for UK-EU relations if they go down this path. Uh, Can we talk about some of those implications? Mm. Are they immediate if the UK triggers Article 16? Well, once the triggering happens, it's, well, you have to give a, a months-long formal notice. And then what happens is you trigger, actually, what's supposed to happen is a negotiation to actually protect and um, you know, the, the protocol to have it working again, to focus on the areas that are impractical, that aren't working, that are causing economic or political damage to Northern Ireland, and to then have it resume. That's, in theory, what's supposed to happen. But obviously... You know, we don't know yet, but what areas that the UK will suspend the protocol, we don't know. But it's likely that what they're going to do, the assumption is that there won't be any checks. So that will cause, obviously, huge problems. And then the retaliation, the EU has already sort of considered this. They have done for several weeks and they say that essentially it will be response like tariffs, uh, a suspension of the of the uh, trade agreement. Some EU member states that I've spoken to, diplomats from, are saying that this calls for the whole of the, um, of the, tr- uh, the trade uh, deal to be suspended so really far reaching ramifications which is why I said there's sort of a sense of foreboding about it because it won't be pretty. Best outcome today is it buying a bit of time? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we just don't know. The The UK side won't confirm or deny what uh, is on the horizon. But yeah, I suppose perhaps buying a bit of time. But these technical negotiations have been going on for several weeks now. And if they haven't sort of met each other um, when it comes to the actual practical implications of the protocol, and it still is the ECJ, then... Who knows? It probably, I suppose, buying time is probably the best you can come. I don't think you'll have. A, you certainly probably won't have an announcement from the UK side today because, of course, of COP as well. Mm. So something like that would happen next week. And as you mentioned earlier, Clement Bone, the French minister, will be also meeting with David Frost next week. So next week will obviously be a big week to see how this is all going to play out. Shona Murray of Euronews. Thank you. And a little treat for you all before we go. It's their first album in 40 years. Their last album was The Visitors in 1981. Ten tracks. We've already heard three of the songs. So we'll finish this Friday with a blast of ABBA and their new album Voyage. And this is a what's being described as an Irish style track, whatever that is, When You Danced With Me. Uh, and apparently tells the story of a girl left behind in Kilkenny when a boy she loved left for the city. I can remember when you left your penny 
You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.